Do you ever wonder if God overpromises and underdelivers? Do you ever find yourself in a very terribly difficult trial or situation, and you begin to have doubts in your heart? Surely, God cannot help me. Surely, God cannot bring me through this. And I think there is that temptation. And when we think that God's promises are too good to be true, and maybe we begin to think maybe God's promises are too out of touch with reality. Well, that is a reality that Isaiah is facing here because so far, uh, all the way up to chapter 27, what Isaiah has done is to paint a glorious picture To summarize some of the things that Isaiah has been uh, teaching us up to chapter 27, he's been teaching us how God is going to defend his people. God is going to subdue powerful empires, and God is going to make it so that all nations will flock to Israel with admiration and seek to become a part of Israel. Can you imagine hearing such things? When war is on on the horizon, you have no idea how you are going to make it through the war. Surely to many people, these promises must have sounded too good to be true or too out of touch with reality. And indeed, there were many people who were saying, yeah, right. Right, I'll believe it when I see it. Because many people simply could not believe these promises. So we begin a new section in the book of Isaiah. Roughly chapters 28 through 37 is where Isaiah focuses on God's power over Assyria, Egypt, and the unbelieving Israel and Judah. And as as Isaiah shows us, He explains to us what he preached in word, God accomplishes in history. This is how God is demonstrating to us these local and present power of God that they see over Assyria and Egypt and over the unbelieving Israel and Judah. These things are the earnest or the down payment of God's universal reign to come. That is to say, this whole section beginning with chapter 28 through about chapter 37 is really answering the one question. Is God's promise too good to be true? Can he really deliver what he promises? The first thing we see in this chapter is rather a startling and a tragic point. Can I summarize it this way? You made your bed and you must lie in it. You made your bed and you must lie in it. Now, verse 20 of this chapter is really famous. I'm sure you've heard it before. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. That's how I always feel when I go camping. A short bed 
and an ill-fitting blanket. You know, they make for a miserable night, don't they? Now, this is a metaphor, actually, a metaphor for the choices that Israel and Judah have made and the consequences they must now face. Notice in verses 1 through 6, God rebukes Israel. He addresses Ephraim. Ephraim was the largest tribe of the northern kingdom of Israel. So Ephraim stands for the whole nation. And that's why in the Old Testament, uh, the prophets will go back and forth between addressing Israel and Ephraim, the largest tribe representing the whole northern kingdom. And here in verses 1 through 6, God rebukes Israel and saying, Ephraim's proud crown that is on the head of the rich valley and that's a description for the city of Samaria. And Samaria at that time was a rich, luxurious city built on a hill, and it was the pride of the northern kingdom, the center of their politics, center of their commerce and power, their pride and glory. And Israel, the northern kingdom, seeing their own wealth and riches and resources, they were sure that they can weather the storm of the Assyrian invasion that is to come. But God says, uh, he says, he has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest. That is a description for Assyria. While the people of the northern kingdom, they were so secure, felt safe uh, in, in their cities, God says he's going to send them a storm of hail, a flood, a tempest. And when Assyria comes against Samaria, and of course Samaria standing, representing the entire northern kingdom, when Assyria comes against Samaria, her glory will fade like a wilting flower. And Samaria's destruction will be as overwhelming as a flood, and as easy as picking off ripe summer figs. We have a fig tree in our backyard, and when the figs are ripe, all you need is a slight twist of the branch, and the figs fall off. And they are delicious. You know, they don't last long on our kitchen counter. And that's exactly the picture that Isaiah is painting. When the destruction of Assyria comes against Samaria, it will be as terrible and as complete as the flood, and it will be as easy as a man picking up summer fig and quickly devours it. That's the picture here. She, Israel, trusted in her own resources. She was proud in her own strength, and that is the bed that she made, and she must lie in it now. And now verses 7 through 22, we see God rebuking Judah. Uh, the background of this passage is uh, what Hezekiah did. Judah sent envoys to Egypt. Why? Uh, they were gravely concerned about the coming Assyrian invasion, and so they sent uh, uh, ambassadors, envoys to Egypt to get Egypt to help to fight against Assyria. And the envoys came back 
with the news of success. They came back with Egypt's promise that they will help Judah. By the way, Egypt doesn't come through. Okay. Uh, but that's the context and the background of this chapter. And so the people of Judah, they're celebrating. Our problems are over. Egypt will be our savior. We are going to be okay. This call for a celebration. And so what Isaiah reports here is a scene of an absolute debauchery. You see here a scene of all the leaders of Jerusalem, including the priests and all those who title themselves prophets. They're drunk out of their minds. They're so drunk. Did you notice? I don't mean to be graphic, but it's in the text. They're so drunk, they're throwing up all over the table covering the whole table with vomit so there's no space left. It's a scene of amazing, uncontrolled debauchery and drunkenness. Now, what about Isaiah? Because Isaiah had been urging them not to rely on Egypt, but to trust God instead. But you see, to these celebrating leaders, Isaiah's words sounded like the babblings fit only for children. And so they mock Isaiah in verse 9. To whom will he teach knowledge that was taken from the breast? What is this nonsense this fellow is talking about? He's spewing fantasy, fairy tales for kids. They mock God's word in Isaiah's mouth as a nursery ditty. That's what it is. Precept upon precept, line upon a line. Here a little, there a little. It's a nursery rhyme. And they're mocking the word of God in Isaiah's mouth as a silly children's nursery ditty that has no place where sophisticated people discuss serious foreign policy. And so Judah mocked God's word as unintelligent and as unintelligible. And so here comes God's answer. Since Judah is mocking God's word as unintelligent and unintelligible, God is going to make sure that that they really can understand. Verse 11, For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak, speak to this people. This is God's answer. Oh, so you think my word is gibberish? Wait till you find out what real gibberish is. You see, the Assyrians will come against them and they will speak in languages they cannot understand. And now it is God's turn to mock them. Verse 15, Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement. Now, of course, that's not what the people of Judah said. What they said was, we have made a covenant with Egypt, and with Egypt we have an agreement. But you see, in God's eyes, their covenant with Egypt will not lead to life and salvation because in God's eyes, their covenant with Egypt is a covenant with death. Their covenant with Egypt is an agreement to Sheol, to hell. And so the Lord says in verse 18, when the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. You see, Judah, they felt so secure and protected 
sure that Egypt is going to save them, that whatever disaster comes with Egypt's help, they are going to escape it. But the Lord says, when the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. So that is the bed that Judah made, and that is the bed that she must lie in now. Second, this is where we see where true rest is found, and the promise is the rest. The promise is the rest. Now, where sin exists, judgment is expected. But after God rebukes Ephraim in verses 1 through 4, what follows is completely unexpected because after the words of rebuke in verses 1 through 4, we have the unexpected words of grace, verses 5 through 6, in that day. Remember, whenever Isaiah says in that day, he is pointing to the distant future day of God's power and judgment. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. You see, the promise is this. Now, here and now, Samaria is drunk with her own glory. She's so impressed with herself. But her crown and her glory will fade like a wilting flower, but... In that day, God promises to replace Israel's fading glory. And he promises to replace that with his own fading glory. He promises to be the glory of Israel. Again, where there is sin, you expect judgment. What we do not expect is grace and promise. But that's what we have here. And likewise... Words that are completely unexpected follow after God rebukes Judah. Look at verse 16. Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Now think about this for a moment. Zion at this time is the center of nation's unbelief. It is the center of foolishness, disobedience, and faithlessness. But God is not done with Zion. God is not done with them. He has laid a precious cornerstone. And the point is this, of course. No one lays down a precious cornerstone. No one lays down a costly foundation unless they intend to build upon it something of worth and value. Can you imagine putting down expensive and costly labor to put down a foundation of a building only to cover it up with with dust or to build a straw hut over it? No one does that. And and when the Lord says, I have laid, I have laid as a foundation, a precious cornerstone, what God is saying is that even though Zion now is the center of unbelief, foolishness, sin, I am not done with Zion. I have put down a costly foundation because I intend to build upon it something of great 
value, great worth. God is not done. And that is God's promise, and it is a promise of a future blessing that they can only secure by faith. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Now, that's a reference to the fact that Judah's leaders were running around in panic trying to save themselves. They were in haste, and their haste came from unbelief. But faith is steady, and faith patiently waits for God. And so Isaiah's message has dual application. First, Israel and Judah must not rely on their own strength or Egypt. Now, they have no idea how God would save them, but they needed to trust God. They needed to be patient, and they needed to wait on Him. But Isaiah's words have have a second-level application in that his words here and the call for faith are ultimately directed to Jesus. Because in Romans chapter 9, Paul quotes this very verse, chapter 9, verse 33, and he changes the ending just slightly to bring out the sense more clearly. After citing this verse in Romans chapter 9, Paul says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So in Isaiah, whoever believes will not be in haste. Again, the people were running around in panic trying to save themselves. And Paul puts it slightly differently. Whoever believes in him. So Paul makes that that object of faith specific. It's not just faith in a vague sense. It's a faith in a person, Jesus. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And it is in Jesus Christ where we find true rest and the assurance is that God never overpromises and underdelivers. Sometimes God's promise does strike us unbelievable. To the greatest of sinners, God says, your sins are washed away. To the, to the person with the worst of history, God says, I remember sins no more. To the person that sees no hope, God says, I will bring you to glory. Unbelievable promises. And we are almost tempted to say, yeah, right. How could you possibly? Why would you? But it is Jesus that is the ultimate answer to our doubt. Does God ever overpromise and underdeliver? By no means. Whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. And it is in Jesus that we find our true rest. And when we trust in Jesus, then God builds something precious upon that foundation of Christ. And our lives will be nothing more than hay and stubble without that foundation. But standing on Christ, our lives become something of immeasurable worth and value. And we will never be put to shame 
when we build on Christ. And thirdly and finally, there is a bed that is too short and a blanket that is too small. That's our doing. That's man's doing. Thirdly and finally, there is a soft pillow. A soft pillow. Once again, it's, it's man's faithless scheming that results in a short bed and a small blanket. No real comfort. It's a miserable combination. But we can trust God for something better. Uh, the famous preacher, uh, C.H. Spurgeon, when he was commenting on Psalm 31, this is what he wrote. Providence is a soft pillow for anxious heads, an anodyne for care, a grave for despair. God's providence. God's providence is a soft pillow for anxious heads, medicine for our fears, and it's where despair goes to die. And notice how Isaiah chapter 28 ends with God's faith-nurturing providence. And here Isaiah likens God's providence to the work of a farmer. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in weed in rows? A skillful farmer works with intention. A skillful farmer breaks the ground to sow and only to sow. And once the seeds are sown, he does not keep plowing. A skillful farmer does everything with intention, everything in season, and everything just right. And a skillful farmer uses the appropriate instrument to nurture, to, to cultivate his crop. And he uses the most fitting methods for his harvest. Dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Now, of course, they lived, lived in an agrarian culture. And I think these things were a lot more familiar to them than they, to us. But the point is obvious, isn't it? When you sow, you break up the ground with purpose. You sow the seed, and when the seeds are sown, you no longer plow the field. And depending on what the crop is, you approach it with the right instrument and the right approach in order to bring about a good harvest. And now Isaiah is applying that to God's work. God is breaking Israel and applying the rod to Judah, but he's doing that with Unintention. He applies just the necessary force in a timely manner to reap a good harvest. And that's why as Isaiah reflects God's work and his providence in verse 29, he says, He, the Lord, he is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. And that is a soft pillow for anxious heads. 
I think throughout our lives we suffer many things and it seems as though suffering and pain come at random without a reason that we can perceive and we do not know where and when help, relief, or end will come. So much so that we at times feel that we are close to breaking. But hear this, loved ones. God always works with intention. He does nothing apart from his wonderful counsel. And he uses just the right force, instrument, in just the right season to bring about a good harvest. And that is why in the difficulties of our lives, when we are confronted with the temptation, does God overpromise and underdeliver? We can trust God. His love, His care, and His wisdom will lead us safely. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you for your precious promises. And we thank you for your precious Son, Jesus Christ, who is your love and grace poured out unto us. Jesus Christ, who is the guarantee of our glory. Jesus Christ, our comfort and our rest. And we pray that you will strengthen us against life's many trials. Help us to believe that you, O oh God, are sovereign, powerful, wise, skillful in dealing with us and in our lives. And so help us to wait patiently for the good harvest that you are working to produce. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.